So starting at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, more, not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers in the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, And three out of those six times... It's a command, it's an imperative to say, do not worry, do not be anxious. How has Jesus got the audacity to say that? Because of who he is. But this is where I began my week, on Twitter. I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, There is a major study that's just been released from Generation Z. You are a member of Generation Z if you're born after 1997. Hands up if that's you, and you. And you, there's about three or four of us, some of us are lying about our age. Um, Generation Z is uh, the generation after millennials. And so if you're a young person this morning, if you're a teenager, this describes you. It's a two-minute video that I can summarise in a few slides. It says that people who are born after 97, who are now in their late teens, early 20s, getting towards that, they do not struggle anymore to the same degree that previous generations with, with gangs, with poverty, with alcohol abuse and substance abuse. It's still an issue, but it's not the main issue. The main issue up at the top there is bullying. Above that, the main issue that people struggle with is anxiety and depression. It is a huge issue globally. It's quite an interesting study. Go to The Economist online. It's a bit highbrow. And you can watch this two-minute video. It's a selection of slides. It's very, very helpful. Not just Generation uh, Z people struggle with this. Not just 70% of people struggle with this. Here's a big chap that I wouldn't want to argue with. His name is Joe Marler. He uh, played uh, international rugby for England. And his international career came to an end just after the Autumn Internationals. Where he was uh, open and honest enough to, to say, with, I am struggling with anxiety. He plays for front row um, for the English rugby team. He plays for Harlequin still. But he says... International rugby is such a pressure pot that actually it's caused me mental health issues that I don't want to go through anymore. I don't want to take my family through that. I'm going to lay down my England shirt. I'm going to keep playing competitive club rugby. But anxiety and depression, these two bedfellows, is a big issue in a man's life as much as a young person's life. This uh, slide on the right there. Part of that presentation, I was chatting to Margot earlier, it says the World Health Organization is now causing, calling anxiety and depression a pandemic. And it costs the global economy $1 trillion. Now, Bertie's not here. I'm not sure what that means. I think, it, is that 12 zeros, Chris? 
Yeah, I think so. Is that 12 zeros? That's a lot of money for us <laughs> mere mortals. Um, one trillion dollars is the cause that it costs to the workforce because anxiety and depression is a huge issue in the global economy and in our little church as well. It's little today because it's Easter and many people are on holiday. But how does anxiety, in the words of Jesus, rest with you this morning? Here we go, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. When you read the word therefore in the Bible, it refers to something that's already been said. And Jesus, in chapter 6, has been challenging us ever so much with the inner world as we give, as we pray, and as we fast. And now, having ordered our inner world, verse 19 from last week, Jesus talked about treasure. What's most valuable in our life? What are the priorities and how we use our money, follow the money to find where what we truly worship um, is in our heart? And now Jesus says, therefore, verse 25, and he issues the first command, do not worry. Jesus is not so trite that he says like Bob Newhart on YouTube, stop it. He doesn't just shout at you, stop it. If you're feeling anxious today, stop it. He's not brash. He's not a sergeant major. He's not a distant father. He's ever so close and he cares. But this link to treasure, verses 19 to 21, and the, what is on earth, what we value, and what we're investing in in the future, is very, very important for us to understand as we look at the topic of anxiety. He's like a surgeon, Jesus. He doesn't deal with it on a surface level. Stop it. That would never work. Jesus, like a divine surgeon, goes, he goes underneath the skin. And once again, he's aiming right for our hearts. What does he say? And before we get there, I do want to piggyback off what Deborah shared so helpfully and think about what is anxiety. Let's try and get a handle on what anxiety is. I've thought about this last uh, week or so. I think it's got at least, at least three layers. Here they are. Psychological and physiological and philosophical. What do I mean? Big words. Psychological anxiety is easier to be uh, described than to define. So you can say psychologically, anxiety is when you have uh, an awareness as a mum or dad, as you sit beside your learning son or daughter, that actually you're not too comfortable because they're learning the ropes and how to drive the car. Now that's a good source of anxiety, that they're in charge of a, an expensive piece of tin, and you're not sure if they've got the skills yet to control that vehicle. That's an appropriate uh, worry, an appropriate anxiety. There's a specific danger of the drivers on the road. And has your son or daughter got the skill set to manage? But it can very easily go from being a good thing to an overarching, a controlling thing, a debilitating general condition. That's not really focused on any one thing, not on driving a car or an exam or on the first day of school. It's not like that. The best way, I think, to describe anxiety, to ever might agree or disagree, is like the Jaws theme. But it's a continual theme in your mind. It's as if it's uh, always there. Sometimes it's loud like a wave. Sometimes it's low level. But the Jaws theme is there. There is danger about And you're uncertain in your heart. You can't see it. You just sense it. Maybe it's like a Jaws theme. It's, uh, my wife says this. Anxiety is like a knot in your chest. Sometimes it's relaxed. Sometimes it tightens. It's Sometimes it's hard for you to breathe. It's a 
overwhelming sense that you're looking for the fin and you're sensing all is not right. Physically, anxiety can be called stress. Sometimes stress is a good thing to work efficiently. Leaving it to the last minute is not always the best way to go. It works for some people. But it's part of our God-given auto-immune uh, system and an auto-kind of nervous system that is fight or flight. There's danger, so I'm going to run. There's danger, so I'm going to fight. Sometimes it's wise to do both. But adrenaline gets pumped around your body. And when it comes to understanding anxiety, it's psychological, but it's also physical. If you have a prolonged period of stress in your life, it's overwhelming. Ulcers start to form in your mouth. You start to go off your food. You can get physically shredded very, very quickly if you're under a prolonged period of anxiety and stress. Hypertension, blood pressure goes through the roof, all that sort of stuff. But then thirdly, maybe you don't think of it in this way. It's kind of philosophical. You can feel angst. Another stabbing. Another year of Brexit delay. Another few months of just the credit card bill getting more and more heavy. There's tragedy that I don't understand. What are we doing here on this world? Sometimes that's part of anxiety as well. You can't put your finger on it, but the world doesn't make sense. And I think Jesus sums it up in verse 34. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Right at the end of this passage, do not worry about tomorrow. He's summing up, he said, do not be anxious five times already. He's given a few examples. So maybe worry is, Deborah mentioned this, worry is a concern about the potential, not the actual. Worry is a concern about the potential, not the actual, what could happen, rather than probably what will happen. When you boil it down like a a sauce that you're going to put on top of a sticky coffee pudding, just to salivate, waiting for my lunch. When you feel anxious, it's because you want to be in control, and you feel out of control, and you're afraid. Sometimes that's rational and helpful, sometimes it's very unhelpful. The desire to control what is uncontrollable. I think that's what anxiety is. But if that's what it might be, we might be able to improve or define it in a different way. Where does it come from? Where's the source of anxiety in our hearts? The Bible is always gives a very eloquent and detailed answer from the lips of Jesus. If you look at what he says, he speaks very specifically. Look at verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life, her life? Who of you, just by worrying, by being anxious, same word, can add a single hour to his life? That's the point. By being anxious, by worrying, we want to add control mechanisms to our out-of-control life. We want the extra hour. We want the extra chance, the extra five minutes in the exam. We want to have another swing at a problem that our boss gave us. We want to have another swing at parenting because we think we could have done a better job next time round. We want the power that God and God alone has got. I think that's at the deep level that Jesus wants to expose in this passage. When you go to the doctor and you get more bad news, when the boss summons you into the office and you know the inevitable is going to happen, like a pin next to a balloon, it exposes what we always knew was true. We're not in control. Bad news comes in and it shatters the illusion, it shatters the mirror. 
that we're in control of life. We get anxious because all of a sudden we feel like we're out of control. But the truth is, we've always been out of control. But God always is in control. God is showing us through the words of a boss, through the hard words from a doctor, through a hard situation in life, what has always been true, what we always knew, but we never owned for ourselves. We've never been in charge. We don't like it. We want to be in control. We are afraid of the future. We just want to add another hour to our life. We want to be in control, but only God is. And I think that is the source and reason for anxiety. We think we could do a better job than God in our lives. Yeah, but God doesn't know. But God should have provided. But God should have foreseen. God should never have let, allowed that to happen. Our buyer falling through again. But the Bible says the reason we want to be in control is because actually that's a misunderstanding of what we were made for right in the very beginning. Under God's loving authority, he made the world with a world of authority and creative power. But underneath his loving authority, we were made to be stewards. Stewards of his world. Now think of a steward. A steward would be familiar in the ancient Near East or even in the Greco-Roman world. And a steward would be under the authority of the ruler of the house. It's where Lehman's got the idea of master of the house from, I think. They're under the authority of the king. Think of Joseph and Pharaoh. They're under the authority of the ruler of the house. And they would then, the steward would have slaves under their authority. So they would be an intermediary. If they did a really good job, then the slaves underneath them would work efficiently and well. And the boss above them, the ruler, would give them all that they needed as well. But the Bible says... We, under our loving authority of God, that was never enough for us. As sin entered the world, we wanted not just the authority that God gave us, we wanted his authority as well. We wanted to shove him out of the way. Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. We thought we could do a better God, a job even than God. We wanted to be our own masters. We didn't want to be a steward anymore. That's what the human ego always wants. You won't read this in a non-Christian book about anxiety. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a very helpful sentence or two. He says, the human ego, the human heart does not feel secure. So what does it do? It grasps for more power in order to make itself secure. It doesn't regard itself as sufficiently significant or respected, and it seeks to enhance its position. No one's noticing me. Life is out of control, therefore I'm going to seize Control for myself. If you don't believe that, look at a toddler. That's what they do. And if you don't believe a toddler, look into your own heart. We're just more subtle at hiding it. We want control. We want influence. We want power. Because we don't believe that God has got our best interests at heart. So anxiety is like a daily text message to God saying, I can do a better job than you. You just text him every day with your actions. We don't say it with our lips. We're insecure. We want more power. We have to assert ourselves. So what is anxiety? I think it's a, at its heart, it's root level. We want to be in control. We want to control the uncontrollable. Where does it come from? I think it's a mis-outworking of actually our good God-given status to be rulers and stewards under his loving authority. But we say, no, we don't want that. We'd rather be in complete control ourselves. We doubt God's care. Okay, let's get to the Bible. What do we do about it? Jesus says a lot. I think it's right thinking and right priorities. 
right thinking, right priorities. What do we do about it? First of all, look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Sentence 28. See the lilies. Verse 30. Look at the grass. Jesus is saying you need to reprogram your mind if you want to battle anxiety. And it is a battle. It's daily. It's not something you're going to master if you just take a certain tablet or you read a certain book or listen to a certain talk. You need some skills. And Jesus says it begins with right thinking. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Verse 28, see the lilies. Now, our modern translation is unhelpful. You go back a few hundred years to the King James, it says consider. Because the word Jesus uses in verse 26 and 28 is not just a blepo, it's a normal word for see. It's not just a looking, a seeing word. It's consider. And that's a thought. It's looking at something and then mulling it over, processing it. Consider the birds of the air, consider the lilies, consider the grass. Now, of the relationship of which I'm in with my lovely wife, Jo, she's the twitcher, not me. But in recent months, I've started to be a twitcher. It began at Wilco with a one-pound purchase of a coconut shell that's full of coconut and beef suets and seeds that birds like. We hung it up with a piece of brown string outside of our kitchen window, and suddenly it's a magnet for hungry birds. Now, I'm not sure. I I know a heron, I know an eagle, I know a, a sparrow, I know a robin. That's it. But I'm now starting to learn and get fascinated in a very anorak, unless anyone's a bird watcher here, in a very helpful way. I'm getting fascinated by birds. They are quite remarkable. They're scruffy looking. And yet they're intricately and wonderfully made. The detail on a bird's back, the number of feathers before it puffs itself up, if it's a cold or if it's got a sense of impending doom, they're quite remarkable. I'm getting quite fascinated by birds. Jesus says we should do that too, but that's only a means to an end. Consider, think about, process birds and how they're cared for. That's the connection to make from verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Don't just look at birds. Don't just become a bird watcher. Don't become fascinated by birds. You look at birds because there you see is demonstrated your care of your heavenly father. That's the first process in right thinking. Thinking is absolutely critical. I don't know if you are not yet a Christian here this morning and maybe you're thinking, the trouble is for you Christians. Okay, he's used some long words, but the trouble with you Christians, you leave your brain at the door, you don't think. Christians are people who just have faith and they don't think. Can you see from these words that that's completely wrong? Jesus is saying Christians are people who do think. It's not a leap in the dark. It's considering. It's taking God at his word. That's what faith is. Faith is a a growing position of confidence towards the world and everything that you experience that's based on what God has said in his word. It's a growing confidence that builds as you see more of God's character, as you know more of the Bible, and you grow in confidence towards the world based on what God has said in his word. And that means you need right thinking. That means that you consider what is a potential source of anxiety, and so to speak, you start speaking to your own heart. This is not self-talk. 
This is what the psalmist does. This is meditation on God's promises and character and nature and speaking God's truth into your very heart. Taking yourself to task. I feel this, dear heart. I know what you're feeling, but this is what God has said. It's considering God's character. You start to argue with yourself. If you're talking to yourself in a car before you go to uh, an office and your mate knocks on the door, your work colleague, just say what my pastor told me to do it. Okay? If they think you're crazy or not, you know the depths of your own heart and you're saying, I need to process how I feel before the cross. I need to process how I feel. I need to consider what God is like in the world. And I need to take him at his word. And I need to hear that in my own heart and person. Consider the birds. Consider the lilies. These two arguments God presents before us says, the first argument is the bird of the air argument, verse 26. The second argument is the grass of the field argument. One of them is about providence. The second one is about love. Consider the birds of the air. God is in charge of them. God gives them what they need, verse 26. You don't even have the power to add a minute or an hour to your life, but God cares for them. How much more would he not care for you and give you all that you need? Jesus says God has got all the power, he's got all the resources, and he expends that on a little sparrow. How much more valuable are you than they? Doesn't matter how you feel, you are much more valuable to God than a little bird. Do you know how to use that on your heart? It's about providence. You go to the Ashley Centre and you say to the local Epsomites, what's the definition of providence? They may say, what's the name of a place in uh, America that the settlers came out the capital? It's providence. Um, but actually, providence is more about God's provision. That's what, how the Bible explains it. Everything that happens to you in your life is part of God's good plan. Nothing that happens to you in your life is outside of his provision and care. Those are hard truths. But God has not made us robots. These two uh, truths go side by side in the Bible. We are not robots. We have free will and we're responsible for our actions. But overarching those and surrounding those two principles is a God who cares in every single detail of our lives. is worked out according to a good, pleasing and perfect plan. Nothing happens outside of his counsel. Nothing happens outside of his purposes. And until you can grasp that, it will be almost impossible for you to deal with anxiety. You have a heavenly father, verse 26, who cares for you. Look at the birds. The first principle of right thinking. When I was little earlier, I had a quite a penchant, I had quite a delight for stones. I would eat stones and, and I would uh, kind of chew on them, suck off some mud, and my parents would come and take them out of my mouth and put them back. I was told this, it's quite an early memory. As I was uh, getting older, I would follow my dad, he was an electrician for 40 years, but rather than using electricity wisely, I would take a fork and try and put it into a plug socket with a few narrow escapes, um, I can tell you. When you're young, you think, my parents are so out of touch. All I want to do is play this, I want to go there, I want to do that. And sometimes parents say no. Whether you're a teenager, it's hard to hear because they're so square and out of date. Whether you're younger, it's even harder to hear. They're just spoil sports. All I want to do is put this fork right into the plug socket and see how far it goes in. What on earth could go wrong? 
But if you have parents who care for you, hopefully, they will say, no, that's not a good idea with the fork. That's not a good idea with the stone. Here's some bread, mouldy piece of bread. That's all I got in life. You'll cry for me later. But Jesus says, look, your heavenly father cares. Don't doubt his loving provision. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds, says John Newton. It's the principle of providence. It's not a place just in America. It's what the Bible teaches. God is a God who cares for the birds of the air. How much more valuable are you to him than they? The principle of providence. Yeah, but if I really trust him, if I really come under his uh, heavenly fatherly care, under his lordship, what if he asks me to go somewhere I don't want to go to? What if he asks me to do something I don't want to do? What if he tells me something in the Bible that I should not do, that I would quite enjoy doing? Well, friends, that's the whole point. You have a king. And you have a king because I'm not wise and neither are you. And so sometime in the kingly priorities, there will be things that the king says in the Bible that you should do. That will be hard to hear. Some places that he wants you to go to that you don't want to, and it's an issue of obedience to the king. Think about Abraham. Do you really think Abraham enjoyed the walk up Mount Moriah to offer Isaac? Think about Moses. He really did not want to go to Pharaoh, so he had to have a sidekick of Aaron come alongside him. Think about Jesus, who didn't want to go to the cross. But because he knew his heavenly father's will was good and wise, he persevered. <coughs> One little thing you have to do is to consider the birds of the air. Look at sentence 28. There's a different argument now. It's not about providence. It's about the lilies and the grass of the field, verse 30. One's about providence, God's care for the birds, and his greater care for you. The second one is about his love. It's about his love. This is the different argument. It's not about control. It's about his love. Look at sentence 32 as well. Your father, your father knows what you need. He's your father. Once again, you take your heart in your hands, so to speak, and you seek biblical truth into your heart when anxiety is bobbling up, when the wave is getting bigger. When fear is overwhelming, God loves you more than you can ever imagine, more than you ever understand. He knows the hairs on your head, he knows how many tears have fallen down your cheeks this week. He knows how difficult last year was for you. He knows how many empty chairs there are in your life that you wish were full of loved ones. He cares for you. How will he who did not spare his own son for you, how will he fail to give you anything you need? Impossible. Again, on Twitter this week, I saw someone else use the illustration of my friend's life. My friend's called Dimitri, and he has a little boy called Thea with spina bifida. There's all sorts of operations that needed to happen at his early life, and uh, at one point, when there was a massive operation that needed to happen in Theo's life on his spine. For 24 hours before the operation, Dimitri had to hold his son and not allow him to eat one thing. 
He was shouting, he was screaming, who are you, don't you love me? I'm sure he was thinking that on the inside before he could even speak. And maybe Dimitri had the opportunity to say, I love you enough that this is good for you. You can't eat right now because you need the operation then. And maybe that's a wonderful little picture of how God cares for us. Sometimes he withholds things for our good. But he's a good, good father. Right thinking. And then very quickly, it's about right priorities. Look at sentence 33. Right priorities. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. All these things will be given to you as well. Remember Mary and Martha, those two lovely ladies in Jesus' inner circle, Luke chapter 10 at the end? Uh, you get this wonderful little picture. I'm never sure if it's a vignette or a vinaigrette, one of those things. The one you don't have on salads. But here is Jesus in this little home. You have a choice that needs to be made. And it's the same word there that is used here. Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many, many things. Your heart's bubbling over with fear and anxiety. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has found it. As Jesus, to paraphrase, sit down and focus on me. She's listening to me. Her heart is overflowing with waves of anxiety and fear about everything that needs to be done. But Mary's chosen the right thing. We need people in our lives to get things done. But Mary's got the right priority. Worry, you see, is always a lack of proportion. Things get out of whack in our understanding. It's an over-concern for something. But Jesus, if he's not on the periphery, if he comes in the centre, then anxiety can be managed day by day. It doesn't matter if anxiety comes and uh, your profession is under attack or a relationship is going through a hard season, if it's material stuff or money or comfort, if anything else is in the centre other than Jesus, anxiety will always rule your life. And you will be knocked off the surfboard, so to speak. You'll be torn up physically and spiritually. But Jesus has been saying, you cannot serve two masters, verse 24. You can invest in the earth or you can invest in heaven. And now he says, verse 33, here's the key. It's right thinking about birds and fields, but it's also about right priorities. Seek first my kingdom and righteousness. In other words, put me first. Give your money away. It's not your security. Pray your heart out. You need to because you have a God and Father who cares for you. God in heaven who cares for you. Uh, fast when you can because it's about inner dependency upon me. Treasure the future, not the present. And I guarantee you all your other concerns will fall into right proportion if you put me first, says Jesus. Queen Elizabeth the first, not the second, once uh, told a man, a, a businessman, um, that I need you to go on a journey from England to that horrible place for America uh, because your skill set is needed on the journey. And uh, this man looked to her and said, uh, Your Majesty, I'm a small businessman and my business is floundering. I can't afford the time. If I go on it, I think my business is going to sink. And apparently, Queen Elizabeth said, My dear friend, you mind my business, and I'll mind your business. And immediately the fear lifted. He's got all these concerns in his heart, waves are huge in his life. The business is going to collapse if I go on this journey to the Americas, to the new world. But now the queen, the sovereign with all the resources, 
has said, no, 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 I will look after your business. Don't worry about it. I'll care for it. I'll, I'll sort it out, but you care for my business. And the man had a choice. And so do we. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Right thinking, right priorities. Let's pray.